0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And,
0: and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <coughs> no country for old men. And True Grit. Let me ask you something.
2: What's the most you ever lost? A coin toss.
3: Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything.
2: Just call it, friendo.
4: In the
5: satchel, full of money. He's just a guy who happened to find that money.
6: I got a bad feeling,
5: Llewellyn. But it's
7: a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here.
2: I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss.
3: You go up to his trailer. Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. If I don't come back, you tell mother I love
6: her. Your mother's dead.
3: Well then
2: I'll tell her myself. Got a loose skin in here.
4: You think this boy Moss has got any notion of a sort of dead or hunting him?
7: I don't know, he ought to.
4: He's
2: seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me.
3: Just how dangerous is it?
2: Compared to what? The bubonic plague?
7: The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all-out war.
3: You can't stop what's coming. Is
2: this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand.
0: This is a big one. Um, This is based on the Cormac McCarthy book. Now, I uh, originally thought this was based on Blood Meridian, which he wrote around about the same time as Blood Simple. Uh, But Blood Meridian is a completely different anti-Western to this one. Uh, He wrote this book in 2005. So it feels like... Either he was a fan of the Coen brothers' work or the Coen brothers just read this and went, ooh, mysterious, dark, stalking stranger, stolen money, tragedy, but at the same time kind of a dark <laughs> sense of humour and musings on what all this is about. We'll take it. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, this is so our wheelhouse.
0: It is. And it's a, it's a. got a, a different flavour to a lot of their other... They're not really heist movies, are they? They're movies where money and... Murder are embroiled and lead characters and tertiary characters either believe that the money is worth the murder or believe that the money is worth trying to escape from the murder Mm. or try to escape from the money and the murder.
1: (laughs) Or because of the money, the murder becomes necessary.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, they also add in things like blackmail and um, bargaining. I think I specifically, I I, uh, I engage with things when bargaining starts mm. and negotiations because that's a really good way of uh, establishing where people's lines lie. Yeah. And there's a bargaining in this which goes completely awry and should have been taken a lot more seriously.
1: Mm. Ooh, I just had an interesting thought. If you view all Cohen Brothers films as... The grief process mm-hmm. and the characters all going through the various stages of grief. Like the whole story mm-hmm. is their journey from the moment of loss to the acceptance so of f- loss or their own death.
0: So Fargo is just denial, denial. Deny, denial, denial, <laughs> <deny. laughs> This is?
1: Uh, well, this is an awful lot of bargaining. As you said, there's there is anger involved. There is uh, a degree of denial. Uh, Llewellyn is convinced that he can get away with this, hmm. even though all the evidence is to the contrary.
0: Yeah. See, so I would have said it was acceptance, or at least that there, are, that there is acceptance in there, or at least pondering and circling it by the end.
1: Yeah, well, that, but that's the thing, that's what I mean. All of the stories end up landing on some kind of acceptance, right. it's just that it's rarely the, the protagonists.
0: Okay, so this uh, 2007 film is meticulously made and it was a big winner. Uh, It was showered with accolades, ended up in loads of top 10 lists with celebrated critics. Maybe their last truly celebrated film. Mm. I'm trying to think of things which happened after this that got that same level of plaudits and attention. And I'm having some trouble. And we wish this episode wasn't so timely because while we recorded it at the end of last year, the author, Cormac McCarthy, died just a few weeks ago. It was nominated for eight Academy Awards, and it won four of them. It got Best Picture... Uh, Javier Bardem won Best Performer by uh, Support Actor. Uh, the Coen Brothers themselves won uh, Best Director together and Best Adra- Adapted Screenplay. Other nominations included Best Film Editing. Roderick James, the person who doesn't exist, was nominated for Best Film Editing.
1: <laughs> I, uh, well, I mean, at that point, they they've kind of got to go, well, we'll give you Best Directing mm. or we'll give you Best Editing you can't have both.
0: Best sound editing and best sound mixing also got nominated but didn't win. Best cinematography. Roger Deakins didn't get it. Hang on, Roger Deakins Oscar.
1: He's got to have won. He's got something. to something.
0: Have... Oh, best cinematography.
1: Oh. <laughs> okay. It says, Best Cinematography 2020 for 1917. My brain read that as, he's won Best Cinematography every year from 1917 to 2020. Oh,
0: come on, darling. I'm not that old. (laughs) He has been nominated for Academy Awards 15 times, winning Best Cinematography twice uh, for Blade Runner 2049 and 1917. That's not Blade Runner
1: 1917. (laughs) So they'll only give... They give him awards for films that have years in the title
0: yes <laughs> it's an odd thing but again like nominated 15 times he i'm not gonna by any means say roger deacon should win every single time that would be absurd that would be like lord of the rings being in 15 academy awards ceremonies Absolutely. and deserving it to wins win each every time.
1: year even the ones when it's not actually nominated
0: oh Best cinematography for 2007 was Dion Bibi for Memoirs of a Geisha. Not a great film at all. Javier Bardem became the first Spanish actor to win an Oscar. Yikes. So the film is about uh, a drug deal for heroin which goes wrong off camera uh, that gets stumbled upon by our lead... Uh, he, hero, protagonist?
1: Hero, question mark. Question mark. Llewellyn. He,
0: le, protagonist, Llewellyn, uh, who is uh, played by Josh Brolin. It's set in 1980, so everything's very analog. But it never really feels like, a, you, you know, if they're like trying to really make you feel like it's the 80s by uh, like overly playing... Uh, uh 80s music or or uh, you know yeah. playing up hilarious 80s fashions with this they seem to be more intent on saying this is texas mm. because the whole thing is soaked in texas it
1: is it feels like the eight, the early 80s like uh napoleon dynamite feels like the 80s even though it's not it's just that the town hasn't moved on
0: mm. Jared hess The point he was making with Napoleon Dynamite was, I grew up in a place where they refused to meet the 21st century. They were just like, nah, we we, we don't need to move forwards. We
1: we hit 1986 and sort of frantically (laughs) backpedaled. If all the town goes at the same time, we can keep it here, we can keep it here.
0: Exemplified, of course, by Uncle Rico, who lives in an 80s-style panel van and can't get out of his... Teenage sports salad days, but uh, in this case, it's it feels like a western. Only they substitute horses for trucks. Mm. And uh, Llewellyn, uh, upon finding lots of dead men out in the uh, uh, countryside where he was uh, hunting longhorns, finds a suitcase with I think two million dollars in it or something. If you if you look at the synopsis of the book written by McCarthy, who also wrote The Road, which is. I think philosophically we can bring in the parallels with the road at the end on this one as well. It's almost exactly the same as what happens in the book. Pretty much every event, beat for beat, happens in that order with that level of impact. Mm. He finds a man who has been shot and is dying and asks for water. And he says, I'm sorry, I don't have any water, truthfully. Takes the two million away, goes back to his trailer, meets his wife, played by... uh, Kelly McDonald, who's fantastic in this, in a very understated way. I mean, they both are.
4: What's in the satchel?
0: It's full of money.
4: That'll be the day. Where'd you get
6: the pistol?
3: At the getting place.
6: Did you buy that gun?
3: No, I found it. Willing? What? Quit your hollering.
6: What'd you get for that thing?
5: You
2: don't need to know everything, Carla G. I need
5: to know
4: that.
2: Keep running that mouth of yours. I'm going to take you in the back and screw you.
0: Big talk. Keep it up.
4: Fine. I don't
6: want to know. I don't even want to know where you've been all day.
0: They watch TV. They have sex. They uh, uh, go on with their day. And, and, you know, it's all... Like, there's so much that is observed in this rather than spoken. You can tell what... Uh, Llewellyn is thinking, when he sort of straightens up and says he's going back out again, fills up a jug with water, and he never says a word about what he's doing or why he's doing it, but you realise, oh, he's going back to give that poor sod water. Everything bad that happens to him in this film, you could say is because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. You could also say it's because he took the money that wasn't his and didn't just leave it. But you could also say he did... A good, decent thing. And his reward was being stalked by a Terminator.
1: Yes. Yes. There's an element of if he'd come back to the house, dropped off the money and taken the water straight back there. Yeah. Then it wouldn't have happened because he wouldn't have got there yet.
0: So in this case, it is a moment's hesitancy that proves to be his undoing. The very process of examining the extent of his own humanity. But I like the fact that he does go back with Mm -hmm. the water. That automatically tells us as the audience that our... He is not exactly a hero, but he is a protagonist worth rooting for rather than a fucking weasel like William H. Macy in Fargo or Steve Buscemi in Fargo. That
1: is true. He is a decent person who will ultimately, when push comes to shove, do the right thing... It's just that he ums and ahs about it for ages first. Mm. And yet, at the same time,
0: he's very careful. He's very practical. He covers his tracks as best he can. Again, I love this in movies where characters think, and you can see their thinking, because the thing they then do after they've thought is quite enterprising. It's almost like... This is almost a horror movie, insofar as how terrifying Anton Sugar actually is. Mm. The progress through the movie is... This Terminator catches wind of the fact that the money has ended up with Llewellyn and comes after him. Now, when we see Anton Chigar, played by uh, Javier Bardem, uh, is that where he's just blurry and indistinct in the background and slowly comes into focus as like a cop is talking on the phone mm. to another cop, yeah, and then he just sort of stands up like uh, negotiates his way uh, out of uh, the uh, handcuff lock he was in, walks over to behind the cop and then strangles him on the floor in the most grisly fucking way. Just cheese knifing through his fucking throat with these handcuffs. But there's something that Javier Bardem does with intensity in this, which is kind of like he goes to somewhere else entirely, grits his teeth, And his eyes go very, very wide. Like, it's when he's experiencing a sensation, he can't entirely just go dead-faced for, but he's got this kind of a... uh, thing going on. And then just sort of stands up and shakes it off. It's the same when he's performing self-surgery later on. Mm. Like, it's pain, and he can't negotiate with the pain. It's going to happen anyway. So he has this kind of animalistic, teeth-bearing hyper-focus. There's... A laundry list of why the character of Anton Chigurh is frightening. For a start, he wears denim and denim and has hair like a monkey. Uh, America's answer to the Beatles featuring Davy Jones, not the Simeons. We're just trying
4: to be friendly. Come and watch us sing and play. we the young generation. And we've got something to say.
0: Invest in property. To that end you would imagine he would be a laughable figure. Mm. And yet, for some reason, wearing this stuff, he is able to go about his business in this, which is grisly business, uh, and actually be more scary by dint of the fact that he is dressed in a fashion that is somewhat comedic. It's very dated. It's very, This is very much of the 70s as a look, that whole kind of like the pudding bowl thing he's got there. Mm. But as every interaction with people, he's... Very precise, he's irritated, and you can see as he glares at them that he's weighing up, killing them. And he's gotten away with killing people over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in his life. He's just, he's this shard of glass sluicing its way through life, just never meeting any resistance that he can't push his way out of. He is evil incarnate insofar as he is unfazed by what he does.
1: Mm. Interesting. Yeah? Well, I would say that, I mean, you're not wrong, but I think the, the truly evil are the people just above him mm. who've hired him, mm. who set him on his course, knowing perfectly well that he will not be stopped and he will carve his way through whatever's in front of him, and then completely wash their hands of whatever he does. The people who want to keep themselves removed and keep their hands as clean as possible.
0: I think evil is a word in this case. The thing that Anton Chigurh is is wrong as a human being. Mm. There's no soul in there.
1: <laughs> he doesn't seem to experience emotions the same way as other people do. Mm. Yeah.
0: He's a moral vacuum which is exemplified by his use of the coin now this was uh how i thought i think i've mentioned this in in the past batman rarely gets two-face i think yeah we said this on the animated series show it it, it never seems to make the most of two-face to make the most of two-face he has to not just be a gangster he has to not just be a scary guy with a scary voice like this who's flipping a coin because it's very stylish, and he wears two tone suits, and he's got a scary face on one side. Hmm. And, you know, it's certainly not the best use of him if he gives speeches about baby starve while judges grow fat. Why, 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 why? Luck! Blind, simple, stupid, doodah, clueless
1: luck! Ah.
0: Tommy Lee Jones, Batman Forever. No, it's (laughs) It's...
1: not luck, it's the system.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The moral of the story is you can't Can't trust trust the the system. system. Okay. Yeah. But I've seen Two-Face give long speeches and I always get caught on them because it feels like there's something you've missed here. The thing that's really fascinating about Two-Face is he could flip the coin and then kill you with the results. Mm -hmm. Like, oh. You came up tails that with the scratchy over the uh, the, uh, the double head, that means you die. Or he could go ding, ding, and either spare your life or straight up help you. That would make Two Face fucking fascinating because he is literally allowing his moral compass. Mm. He is entrusting it. It's it's effectively like that book, The Dice Man.
1: Yes. It would require, by the way, Batman to point out to him that when he does get the good side of the coin, he still has to make the decision about how to act on that. When he gets the bad side of the coin, he's still yeah. making the decision about what to but
0: do But that about. would make for a really good Batman v. Two-Face story. Yeah. Uh, but almost always, uh, I see Two-Face mishandled, whereby, ding, tails, okay, I kill you. Ding, heads, okay, I find some other way to kill you. Yeah. Which is boring. That just makes him a cheat.
1: The Dark Knight. Yeah.
0: When, it, when he's like, ding, ah, uh, came up to uh, heads, you're lucky. Your driver, however, uh,
1: ah,
0: yeah. it's like, yeah, well done.
1: He's cheating his own coin there.
0: Yeah. The moral of the story is you can't trust Two-Face's system. <laughs>
1: Apparently not.
0: But Anton Chigot, it's a very simple case of uh, when he asks, like, you gather from this lengthy, very awkward, painful set to between him and the uh, garage attendant as he's just sitting there, as he's just sort of of standing there eating sunflower seeds, glaring contemptuously at this man, never blinking, and just, just saying, you know, just going backwards and forwards as this man becomes increasingly more nervous of this guy who, A, can't have a conversation, and B, appears to be progressively malevolent, that the rules of this... Call it, I can't call it for you. I usually find serial killers and fiction about serial killers to be distasteful and dull. But there is an electric power in the silences between the muttered words in this conversation. Because it's not the Joker spouting about how we live in a society. It's an ordinary man coming up against something fundamentally wrong that should not be, that he can neither escape from nor talk his way out of. And like a rabbit in headlights, he barely comprehends it as it approaches.
2: How much? 69 cents. And the gas? Y'all getting any rain up here, way? What way would that be? i seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours where I'm from friendo
3: I didn't mean nothing by
2: it didn't mean nothing You're just passing the time if you don't want to accept that I don't know what else I can do for you be something else I don't know, we'll there Is something wrong with, the with anything? Is that what you're asking me? Is there something wrong with anything? Will it be anything else? You already asked me that. Oh, well, well, I need to see about closing now. See about closing? Yes, sir. What time do you close? Now, we close now. Now is not a time. What time do you close? Generally around dark, at dark. You don't know what you're talking about, do you? Sir? I said, you don't know what you're talking about. What time do you go to bed? Sir? You're a bit deaf, are I said, what time do you go to bed? Oh. Somewhere around 9.30. I'd say around 9.30. I could come back then. Why would you be coming back? We'll be closed. Yeah, you said that. Well, I got to close now. You live in that house on back? Yes, I do. You lived here all your life? This is my wife's father's place uh, originally. You married into it? We lived in Temple, Texas for many years. Raised a family there in Temple. we come out here about four years ago you married into it. <laughs> That's the way you want to put it. I don't have some way to put it. That's the way it is. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss? I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it? Yes. For what? Just call it. Well, we need to know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. You know what date is on this coin? No. 1958 it's been traveling 22 years to get here and now it's here and it's either heads or tails and you have to say call it look
3: i need to know what i stand to win everything
2: how's that you stand to win everything call it all right heads then Well done. Don't put it in your pocket. Sir? Don't put it in your pocket. It's your lucky quarter. Where do you want me to put it? Anywhere not in your pocket. What it'll get mixed in with the others and become just a coin
0: Which it is. He uses something called a captive bolt pistol, which doesn't really describe what he actually has he has an air canister with a thingy on the end
1: it's a bolt gun attached to a compressed air canister
0: it is a device created with the express purpose of slaughtering livestock you pull the trigger thingy and like a a metal rod shoots into their head through their skull this when applied to humans immediately kills them and he does it quite a lot he also uses it uh uh, creatively to remove locks from doors Mm. But the way he applies it to some poor guy, he pulls over insistently, but without even, you know, relating to him as a person. He he sees people as livestock. He sees them as wandering, ownerless cattle. And that's, again, why he's wrong. He's not, again, I hasten to use the word evil. I feel like if if he was evil, he would be able to weigh up good versus evil, and opt for evil. Mm. But because he just can't see any reason not to, aside from uh, uh, scenarios where it might endanger him, that just, to me, feels like he's wrong. Mm. He's wrong philosophically. He's wrong for the world. He's wrong for the species he was born into. But if he was born a wolf, he'd be a crazed, rabid wolf, a wrong wolf. He doesn't work as a mammal. Maybe it's... Is he just operating on the lizard brain?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't even know how to begin taking this apart, to be quite honest. But I, I do think that, the, like I said, the fact that he doesn't seem to experience things the same as other people, he he doesn't react to pain the same way, because he doesn't talk about himself or how he feels... Mm. We can't know what he's experiencing internally, but we do know that he doesn't externalize the things that he's feeling the way that, say for example, Llewellyn does, or even to an extent, Tommy Lee Jones.
0: Ed Tom Bell.
1: Bell does. That when they feel something, you can see in their expression Hmm. what they're working out. With Shiger, that never happens. He is so blank all the time.
0: They almost do too good a job of it, because I can't imagine at the end of this film, Chigurh finds another car, drives home, stitches himself back up, and then relaxes on the couch and has things in his house. Mm. I can not He's so much of a machine, I can't imagine how he lives. And we
1: never see him in Repose, no. do we?
0: No. I think, they, like I say, they, they, all, they went too far to make him mythical, mm. and they went too far to make him inhuman and wrong. Like, his house has got to just be a box. And he goes in there and he reads his messages mm. and his messages say, go here for the next job.
1: Yeah. But the he's thing
0: almost is- like, he's, he's like a, a an agent that is bred into this killing machine yeah. and is kept by a handler in a way that allows them to be set loose like a, a, an attack dog.
1: And that's the thing. There, there are, if we were going to look at the logistics of how he is who he is, let's assume he's an assassin mm. who has somehow found his way into a criminal underworld where people know who he is and to to employ him to do certain mm. jobs, that implies he gets paid. That implies he either has bank accounts or he has somewhere that he keeps his money, so he must have some kind of a house or something that he has as his base how do people get in touch with him when they want him he can't just wander the earth, carrying all of his worldly possessions in his pockets.
0: His tactical proficiency does suggest some kind of military training.
1: It does. Maybe
0: he was in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, but that that is also backed up by the fact that it's the 80s. Now, you could do that. Your banking is all done electronically. (laughs) Your life is in your phone. Everything that you possess can feasibly live in your pockets. You buy new clothes when you need them and throw the old ones away. You don't have to be stationed anywhere specific. Not in
0: the 80s. He's paying too much for shirts as well.
1: Yes, agreed.
0: Conversely, while they've done too well at convincing me he's inhuman, they also don't there wasn't a whole fucking spin-off show devoted to Anton Shigar. Yes. And like, how did he get the way he got? Absolutely. But the, what the, you the, the is absence get. of explanation yes. is actually way better. It it's way scarier.
1: It is definitely a strength I am in so terms
0: of his tired character. by the fascination with serial killers. Yep. I'm not fascinated I'm not fascinated by how he got to how he is. It's just really gripping to see him on the trail of characters that you actually want to live hmm. because it becomes like a terminator scenario, only a small petty terminator scenario, and it is petty over what Margie would refer to as a little bit of money. I mean maybe 2 million dollars enough to change multiple lifetimes, but it's still just money, which is another one of the things the Coen brothers keep coming back to. Yeah. Anton Chagot also uses a silenced shotgun, which is, I think, maybe the first time I ever saw that happen in a film. It's such an odd weapon to silence because as well as directing the shot so that they go forward in a, in a thinner stream rather than the whole point of a shotgun, which is the burst and being able to use it at close range and basically be able to dispatch whatever you're, you've got close up. He he uses it again surgically, like when when he uh, rumbles those guys in the hotel room. He's just like thunk thunk thunk, and again he's extremely careful. There's that scene where he takes off his boots in order to walk very carefully without a sound. And uh, was it so he doesn't he he won't soak blood into his uh, shoes or?
1: Um, well, I think the principle is when there's blood on the floor, he can't easily replace his boots. They will yeah. be noticed if they get blood on them. His socks he can just take off and throw away. Yeah.
0: And similarly, uh, uh, Llewellyn, on the other side of things, is is, is making crafty decisions about... When and where to try to take on his pursuer. And like, there are multiple times you're like, you almost got it there, Mm. which is really a great way of sort of keeping us on edge because it actually seems like there are times he might succeed. And the way, like, the way he doesn't do stupid things Mm. and the way he does, like, handle things in a desperate scenario, like when he's shot, when he's bleeding, when he's delirious, when he's just sort of staggering around the place, he doesn't just. Scream at people. He he behaves shrewdly, but not in a, a not in an inhuman way. Just in a like the way he reloads his uh, and re puts together his gun after it's gotten waterlogged. He's being chased by a dog, and just within the time frame that he's got, the very short amount of seconds, he he is able to. Put that back together again. There's a there's a masterful handling of tension in this. Mm. It's not great if you like dogs because there's several dead dogs in this.
1: There is. I think one of the uh, really well put together elements of how Llewellyn and Shiger work as opponents, mm. is that Llewellyn is, and I, I joked about this earlier, the fact that he ums and ahs about the decision to go and do the right thing, but the bottom line is... I don't is, think
0: ums and ahs is, is the word, like he well, No, that's he what I'm about thinks.
1: to say. Yeah, the the bottom line is that Llewellyn is a thinker. He turns things over in his mind, he works stuff out, and it, it doesn't happen instantly, but it does happen. Mm. His, his rationale, his strategies, and his tactics, if he was up against a regular person... There's no reason they wouldn't work. They don't work because he does not know, at least initially, what he is up against in the form of sugar. Yeah. And once he does know, he works out pretty quickly, actually. He can't take this guy on. Mm. Like, like, not he can't take him on. He can't avoid him. He can't, all of this he stuff can't get that the he best thought of it. he could do yeah. is not going to work with this guy. And at that point, he turns around and takes a stand knowing he will probably not walk away from it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones's character is uh, not dissimilar to Margie's insofar as he's a, a lawman who is baffled. Like, that's his job in the film. He sort of you know, goes around, he he behaves uh, in this kind of, you know, I've seen it all, but not being too au fait with stuff, certainly not being entirely absent of compassion. But the way Tommy Lee Jones holds himself suggests that he's kind of he remains a little guarded. Like he has to have certain armor up in order to be a sheriff at all mm. and to be effective in that. But he has this business-like way of dealing with the bad shit, but clearly internalizes it because his place in this story is to witness the senselessness of Chigar's behavior and to ponder have things gotten really this bad? It is a nostalgic musing insofar as he's gauging the world of 1980 by the years up to 1980, his experiences. Uh, was there anything about him uh, being a soldier in uh, in the World War II?
1: I don't recall.
0: In the book, that is one bit that I was like, I don't remember that. It, mm. He had to leave his whole unit behind to die oh, okay. because staying there would actually have uh, uh, resulted in his death as well. So he dwells on that.
1: Right. I think there's that...
0: a bit of Robert Shaw in um, uh, Jaws about yeah, that.
1: Yeah, I think that would have shaded his character slightly differently.
0: Now in his late 50s, Bell has spent most of his life attempting to make up for the incident when he was a 21-year-old soldier. He makes it his quest to resolve the case and save... Uh, Llewellyn Moss Uh, complicating things is the arrival of Anton Chigurh a hitman blah 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 so yeah he's he feels guilty for what he had to do then Mm. it's possible that they didn't that they they didn't reference that because they wanted people to know it was 1980 but to to talk about stuff that happened during World War II mm. would make it seem a little bit too long ago but you could easily just change that to just a sort of a not. I was a I was a soldier. I had to leave my unit and allow people to sort of fill in the blanks and not be too specific about they it. They
1: could honestly. I think if they had whether this was why I don't know, but I think the reason that that if it's there, it's such a light touch that it's not made hmm. a big deal of. It would shift the point for me of Bell's character. A little bit too soon and a bit too obviously, mm-hmm. which is the, one of the crowning glories of this story is when he goes to talk to his long-retired dad, mm-hmm. who is uh, right at the edge of his life. and
0: In very ill like, health.
1: Exactly. And like Bell, is kind of having this experience of looking back on things. Mm. But he tells him a story that makes it clear that the things that Bell has been lamenting about what is this world coming to have always been there. And the role he's chosen makes him the man who has to see them. Not all of them, but some of them. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, what that seems to come down to for me is that it's not about the time as in 1980 is a terrible place and terrible things are happening in the world it's that you have now been in this world long enough that you've seen so many things that have stacked up on top of one another that you've reached your limit it's not necessarily that the world is worse now than it used to be it's that you have reached your capacity in how much of that worse you can absorb (sighs)
0: Hence, no country for old men. It's uh, an allusion to the the shaking of the head of mm. someone wondering what's the
1: world coming to? Absolutely. And that that sense of an old man's way of looking at the world is always going to be, whatever the opposite of rosy-colored spectacles are. they They look back, with nostalgia because they didn't used to know the things they know now.
0: The future is shrouded in darkness and mystery and it's frightening exactly. because death is approaching. And as they're starting
1: to, to hmm. feel irrelevant and they're starting to feel like the world does not need them hmm. anymore. But it's And not the world is chaotic
0: and violent and young people don't respect each other like they used to in the 1950s.
1: Exactly. And it's not because the world is getting any worse. It's because they have reached their limit on what they can absorb.
7: Hmm. That man that shot you, you died in prison? Angola. Yeah.
3: What'd you done? He'd have been released. Oh, I don't know. Nothing. Wouldn't be no point in it. Kindly surprised to hear you say that. Well, all the time you spend trying to get back what's been took from you, more is going out the door. After a while, you just have to try to get a tourniquet on it. Your granddad never asked me to sign on as a deputy. Loretta tells me you're quitting. How come you doing that? I don't know.
7: I feel overmatched. I always figured when I got older, God would sort of come into my life somehow. he didn't.
2: And I don't blame him. If I was him, I'd have the same opinion of me that he does. You don't know what he thinks.
3: send Uncle Mac's thumb and badge over to the Rangers put it in their museum Did Daddy ever tell you how Uncle Mac come to his reward gun down on his own porch over in Hudspeth County seven or eight of them come up there all wanting this wanting that Uncle Mac went back in the house to get the shotgun well there's a head of him Shot him in his doorway. Aint Ella come out and tried to stop the bleeding. Uncle Mac all the while trying to get that shotgun. They just sat there on their horses, watching him die. After a while, one of them said something in Indian, and they turned and left out. Uncle Mac knew the score, even if Aint Ella didn't. Shot through the left lung. And that was that, as they say. When did he die? 1909. Oh, I mean, was it right away or in the night, or when was it? I believe it was that night. She buried him the next morning, digging in that hard old caliche. What you got ain't nothing new. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you.
0: That's vanity. It's oddly uplifting. There is a way that this film snatches optimism from the jaws of despair which you might miss if you weren't paying attention or if it was just riling you up so much that you were just like this is just too much horrible every person that Anton Chigurh meets is just trying to get along with their life even the fucking cartel mob are just trying to kind of do their jobs so few of them are like him he's wrong Everyone else is not necessarily right, but they're just a standard, calibrated human being. So when he meets someone who's like, "Ha, huh, I don't even like," people don't get angry with each other and start screaming in each other's faces and, and jabbing fingers in each other's chests. And like, you know, if this was a fucking David Mamet film, yes, they would. Mm-hmm. But the point of this film seems to be Anton Chigurh is one man who frightens the shit out of us but he's among all these people who just want to live and carry on and watch TV. And you could be depressed by their lack of uh, wanting to shoot for the moon, or, or, you know, you could say, well, he's a wolf and you're either a wolf or a sheep. But ultimately he's wrong, which illustrates how right the majority are just in terms of being able to live and let live and get by without murdering each other in horrendous ways. And while it might seem like the world is going to hell in a handcart, most of us, by and large, will not commit bloody murders. And if we do, we'll feel bad about them. Indeed. And I think this is exemplified by there's a point where Chagar, who's been pursuing uh, Llewellyn all over the place, they both shot at each other, they've both been horribly injured. There's that fantastic shot where Chagar's sort of limping along the street, just angry and irritable because he is being put out of action by his body not working properly and he's bleeding and he needs medical attention, which he's going to administer to himself... And then, again, this is why I think military training, he just sort of MacGyvers way to get a distraction by blowing up a, a, a car. And then there's, there's that Roger Deakin shot of him just sort of limping his way into Walking the...
1: like it ain't <laughs>
0: Limping his way into the laundromat. And then the car goes off and everyone goes running towards it. And he just doesn't even blink. He just mm-hmm. keeps on moving. Goes straight behind the counter of the uh, pharmacy and just grabs a load of uh, pills. But he gets on the phone... T- there's there's two things that specifically strike me uh, about the movie uh, when it comes to the way that the core three characters interact. And that is, they are silently near to one another several times. Like, there's a point where Llewellyn and Chigar are, are separated only by a door. And then there is a point where Chigar and Sheriff Bell are separated only by a door. And there's that very cautious... If I take one more step forwards, it's probably going to end in absolute bloodshed. And then there's that just sort of retreat from there. It's almost like they're haunting each other as they as they sort of like circle and circle and get close. You've got the, the guy who's lawful good. You've got the guy who's chaotic evil. And you've got true neutral in the middle who is still compelled to do good things. But there's the point where Chigar and... Uh, Llewellyn are uh, talking to one another on the phone. This is after Woody Harrelson is—he doesn't exactly plead for his life, but it, it's when Chagar sort of sits down uh, beside him. He's wearing this fucking ten-gallon cowboy hat, and Harrelson knows he's probably about to be shot. Like he's got the fucking shotgun pointed directly at his chest, and he's halfway between just going, "All right, fuck it, just kill me, just kill me, fuck it, fuck you, buddy." He's halfway between saying that. And, and he's also still in the bargaining stage. He's like, let's go down to the ATM. I will get you $14,000. Put it in your pocket and just walk away. And the fact that Chagaz is like a, an ATM. He's killed so many people. They always say the same thing. They always plead for their life. They always say, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. He almost He almost is teasing them. But at the same time, he's musing on humanity almost as much as bell himself yeah,
1: i think it intrigues him that everybody reacts in similar ways
0: yeah i think there may be some of uh, him in seth in terms of that he's interested in people but in a in a disconnected he kills people with the stroke of a pen like as in like when he pulls the trigger on woody harrelson and woody harrelson's like you like woody harrelson basically uh, expresses you are wrong There's something about you that just doesn't fit, Mm. Sonny Jim, and you're going to kill me now, but you have to live with being wrong. And then he just kills him with a stroke of a pen. But when he talks to Llewellyn, he says, if you give me the money now, I'll kill you. But if you try to run, I will not only kill you, I'll kill your wife. And Llewellyn makes the one huge mistake of the film, which is to, to not just say, fine, I'll be waiting here. Come get the money and kill me. Because he gets killed by the Mexican cartel anyway. And Chigurh eventually... Does he recover the money? I can't remember. Did the cartel get it back?
1: Um, do you know, I can't even remember what happens to the money. Fuck it.
0: It doesn't really matter, does it? But that's the thing. Like the, Where did the money go is kind of pointless. Because, where's the money, Lavowski? Because it just comes down to the loss of life in the end. The loss of that being together. The climax of the film, which again should induce you to despair, is... He tracks down uh, Kelly Macdonald, who's at her mother's house, and her mother, played by Beth Grant from uh, Donnie Darko, Sparkle Motion, and Speed and Rain Man, and she's been in so much, and she's fucking fantastic, brilliant. She's so seasoned at playing that kind of, you know, in this she's basically the mum in the room. She's like, well, it's true, I definitely have cancer, but she does so in a kind of a, well, I've been living with this all this time, and, you know, she's got this sour relationship with death impending. So, yeah, she's frightened as well, but there's this kind of weird acceptance about the way she's talking about it. Kelly MacDonald's character lives long enough to be able to have to bury her mother, and then Sugar is waiting for her when she gets home, and... The thing that again allows this movie to rest, there's another thing coming up as well, to rest optimism and a philosophical bent from this seeming chaotic madness and despair is that he's like, call it and she won't call it. She says no. She stands up. She's stoic. In the book, she eventually says uh, heads and it comes up tails and he kills her. Mm. That's not as satisfying as her her squaring her jaw at him and saying, no, you don't have to do this. Mm. The coin don't mean nothing. This is all you. She says what Batman would say to Two-Face, but Mm. Batman's always in a position of power. Batman is always in the position of, I've prepared for this, I'm the hero, I'm going to survive this no matter what. Mm. She's going to die. Mm. And her last words are to effectively say, your whole worldview is skewed. It's wrong. You're wrong, and I will not play your fucking game. She's kind of like Woody Harrelson, and it's less personal. Mm. And she's just a person who sees the world... Uh, in the kind of, you know, you just get by way.
1: Yeah, and she's not doing this in a bargaining way. That's the other thing. Although, yes, the the ideal outcome of this is that he realises that she's right and he chooses to walk away. But the bottom line is she is satisfied to just make him do something that is against the nature he's been following all of this time. She makes him make the decision.
0: You do not see any sign that he questions himself. And then when he leaves the house, we don't, again, the Coen brothers are very good at holding back. We don't see Llewellyn die. We just see his body. We don't see her die or her body. We don't even hear a gunshot. But when he comes out of the house, he looks at his shoes, which suggests that there was blood on the floor, which is a subtle, grim note. Mm. But here's the thing. There is a recurring message in this of you can't see what's coming now we watched a a, a fantastic youtube series about script writing and it's repeated and and said in these exact words you know you can't see what's coming down the road and that's partly this obscured future that's terrifying at the end Chagar is crossing a green light and should absolutely, you know, he's obeying, abiding by the traffic rules. He gets blindsided by a, another car which crashes into his and uh, doesn't kill him, but it leaves him staggered and injured again. And he didn't see that coming. Everything that we've seen about Chigarh so far, even though occasionally he comes a cropper, he can seemingly cope with. But he's really blindsided by this one. He's just sort of staggered and and bewildered and he pays a, an onlooking kid 50 bucks for his shirt just so that he can tie up his arm which has a bone protruding from it mm. but there is hope to be gleaned from the fact that this wrong wolf this rabid man can be hurt can be killed also can't see what's coming mm. and isn't just going to walk away clicking his heels to victory. This isn't really a victory to him. He carries on living in a world that bewilders him. But Tommy Lee Jones' last speech to his father is about having a dream about the man, riding ahead of him, unattainable, because his father's close to death, and frankly, Tommy Lee Jones' character is, you know, contemplating his own death, even though it could come decades from now. But he's... Describing his father with a uh, a flared horn, like a flaming torch, riding in front of him in the mist, and knowing that he's lighting the way. And there's a, that's an odd parallel to suggest that our fathers, rather than our children, are leading the way. But it challenges the no country for old men sensibility. It does suggest that... You can follow good examples set in the past mm. to push forwards. Yeah.
1: I do think that makes a lot of sense, the idea that our, we are clearing a path for our children, but we are walking the path that's been cleared for us by our forebears. Mm. If they did that, which obviously parents do... To a lesser or greater degree. But yeah, I think I like the the scene where he's hit by the car and then is obviously very shaken by what's happened. Mm. Again, his his externalizing of it is very minimal, but you can see from the way he reacts to things that this is not, his brain is not going through its usual procedures. And I personally think part of this is because uh Kelly MacDonald has turned his way of thinking upside down. Because if you look at the people who he flips the coin for. And the people who he does not flip the coin for, Mm. the people he kills as part of the job, he's been told to from an external source. Whoever's hired him, whoever's paid him, wants him to kill certain individuals or at least to kill individuals who are directly blocking him from doing the job he's been paid to do. The people he flips the coin for are not part of that. Yeah. But he is still seeking permission from an external source, e.g. the coin, to do it. The
0: coin don't mean nothing.
1: Exactly. And if she refuses to call it, that means that is potentially the first time ever that he has made a conscious decision to kill somebody internally. Somebody that he doesn't have to, specifically. Who isn't directly blocking his path to the thing he's Yeah, because
0: everyone else that he kills, like the poor guy he kills to take his car, it's to take his car. Yeah. And he doesn't kill the boy for his shirt. No. He just gives him a bloody 50 bucks.
1: Yeah. Huh. But she is not... Either he's got the money or the money is gone. She is not blocking his way to the money anymore. Hmm. Llewellyn is dead... So he's not killing her to blackmail Llewellyn anymore.
0: Her whole point is, this is madness. Why are you adhering to this code?
1: Absolutely. She obviously doesn't have the money. She goes through a whole spiel about how she's totally broke and can't even pay for the funeral. Mm.
0: And uh, Cormac McCarthy also wrote The Road, which is a deeply depressing film. Imagine The Last of Us, but even more depressing. (laughs) I, there's much greenery and life returning in the world of The Last of Us. This is a world where the sun has been scorched and everything is just brown and polluted and terrible and cold and misty. And everyone that uh, Vigo Mortens and, and his son, um, Cody Smith-McPhee, everyone they encounter is like a crazed hobo or a cannibal or something. It's like Fallout without any fun whatsoever.
1: Yeah. I... I- was deeply discomforted by the road because Mm. it flies in the face of everything that I believe and have observed throughout time, which is that after death and ruin, Mm. life comes back. This says after death and ruin, there's more death, then everything catches fire, then there's more death, then the few scraps of people who are left kill each other.
0: (laughs) Okay, spoilers for the road if you haven't seen it. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is terrified that they're being followed and he doesn't want his son to be caught. And he's, he's basically gearing up. He's got one bullet left in this gun that he keeps threatening people with. He's gearing up to kill his son. And in the end, he is unable to and dies. Uh, and his son meets the people who are following them who have been very worried about this boy because they think that the father is unstable and they have hope and they're still going to carry on travelling and so he joins them. And it's oddly twinned with, especially since it's such a misty film, Stephen King's The Mist, which bears a similar... Like, it might seem to have the most depressing fucking ending of all time, but ultimately uh, both stories are saying that is not a decision to make you are taking the hope of everyone else if you make that decision your life is your responsibility but other people's lives
1: are their responsibility, are their
0: responsibility. and the fact that that comes from the same guy who came came up with this and if you look through his bibliography it seems very bleak mm. I feel like somewhere down there, there is a kernel of faith that what our greatest enemy is, is despairing in the face of all this shit and not being able to go on Mm. because both films end in a kind of a, huh,
1: okay way. Right. I wonder if it's not so much the greatest enemy is the despair and the giving up and not being able to go on it's the despair that takes you to the place where you start turning on each other yeah where you decide that it nothing matters anyway so we might as well take Mm. each other down
0: nothing matters if you decide nothing matters Yeah, we decide what matters and if you decide to kill your children you are devouring and extinguishing all hope Before we move on to True Grit, I'm going to do the weekly thank you to our patrons at the $15 level. A big thank you to Aaron Le Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hebner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finn Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Jan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Bahe, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pollmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Heleshayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. This is the last of our Coen Brothers shows. But if you're part of the Patreon Club at the $5 bonus level or higher, you can listen to episodes on The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, Hail Caesar, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and The Tragedy of Macbeth.
6: I'm about to embark on a great adventure.
4: With my head bowed low.
6: I intend to see Papa's killer hanged. They tell me you're a man with true grit.
7: What's your name, girl?
6: My name is Maddie Ross. In the darkness as black as the sea. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death.
4: And I cried, oh
6: Lord. I shall fear no one. Burnin. What do you want, girl? I'm looking for the man who killed my father. The man's name is Tom Cheney, and I need somebody to go after him.
7: What's your name?
6: My name is Maddie Ross.
7: You have a lot of experience
3: with bounty hunters, do you?
6: That is a silly question. I am 14.
3: You can run on for a long time. Time for you to go home.
6: I don't like you. I will not go back, not without Cheney, dead or alive.
3: I you gotta cut you down.
7: Now what? Cogburn. Them boys, you don't think about the wrath that's about to set down on you <laughs> Changing this game a rough lot. I do not regret shooting your father.
4: I will kill this girl!
7: Biggest mistake you ever made. <laughs> Gonna cut you Help me! I can do nothing for you, son.
0: Okay, welcome to Flavor Country. True Grit is one of my top Coen Brothers films and proved to be influential on the New Century Multiverse. This is a rich well of the feel of a western again the cohens have been uh, dabbling with being immersed in in westerns for you know pretty much their entire career blood simple can be read as a western
1: mm, a uh, country for old men definitely
0: absolutely is. yeah uh, oh brother where are out there definitely is and uh, buster scruggs and this is probably well th- this is most definitely their closest to sort of a western adventure mm. And it's the uh, second big screen adaptation of Charles Portis's 1968 Western novel. So the original one from 1969, the John Wayne one with um, Kim Darby, uh, was just a year after the book was written. So they didn't even have really time to even consider, what's the best way we can do this? They just ran in there and just did it. Let's just do true grit. Came out a really memorable uh, uh, theme tune. By the great Elmer Bernstein. directed by Henry Hathaway. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a serviceable Western. Uh, less racist than, say, The Searchers. Yeah, it's it's, it's a John Wayne film. Well, well, you know, Give or take what you like about that. And one of his best and most famous. Uh, there was also a 1975 sequel to the John Wayne film, Rooster Cogburn and the Lady, co-starring Catherine Hepburn, which I think we now have to see, because we like Catherine Hepburn a lot. And she, herself... ...made an impact on the New Century Multiverse... ...although John Wayne hasn't. Uh, the Coen Brothers film was the big screen debut... ...of one Hayley Steinfeld... ...playing the role that Kim Darby had done before. Kim Darby was 22 when she played Matty in 1969. Hayley was like 13. Much closer to the actual age... ...that Matty is supposed to be in the book... The novel is narrated by Mattie Ross, a church-going elderly spinster, uh, distinguished by her intelligence, her independence, and her strength of mind. And She recounts the story of her adventures 50 years earlier, in 1878, when she undertook a quest to avenge her father's murder by a drifter named Tom Chaney. She is joined on her quest by Marshal Reuben Roost Cogburn and a Texas ranger named Labeef. As Matty's tale begins, Chaney is employed on the Ross's family farm in west central Arkansas near the town of Dardanelle in Yell County. Chaney is not an adept as a farmhand and Matty has only scorn for him. She's got scorn for a lot of people. Yeah. Referring to him as trash and uh, noting that her kind-hearted father Frank hired him only out of pity. One day, Frank, Ross, and Cheney go to Fort Smith to buy some horses. Ross takes along $250 with him to pay for the horses, along with two gold pieces that he always carried. But he ends up spending only $100 on the horses. Later, Ross tries to intervene in a barroom confrontation involving Chaney. Chaney kills him, robs the body of the remaining $150 and the two gold pieces, and flees into <clears throat> Indian territory, which is now known as Oklahoma, on his horse. Matty hears that Chaney has... This is the book, by the way, not the film. It's just that the film, the second version of the film, the Coen Brothers version, actually cleaves a lot closer to the uh, book. Matty hears that Chaney has joined an outlaw gang led by the infamous Lucky Ned Pepper, played by Barry Pepper, and wishes to track down the killer upon arriving at Fort Smith. So she's like a little girl who's like, I've got to find my father's killer. She looks for the toughest... U.S. Marshal in the District, and that man turns out to be a rooster Cogburn, an aging, one eyed, overweight, trigger happy, hard drinking man. Matty is convinced that he has grit and that his reputation for violence makes him best suited for the job. The Cohen brothers version focusing on Matty's point of view over the uh, John Wayne film follows the novel more closely than the original. Uh, the Cohen movie is shot in settings more typical of the novel as well. The uh, John Wayne film was shot in the Colorado Rockies and the Sierra Nevada while the 2010 film was shot in Santa Fe, New Mexico as well as Granger and Austin, Texas, so they're going back to Texas again. Mm-hmm. Hayley Steinfeld is fucking incredible in this film. In terms of debuts, she was also... This was around the time she started being in, like, not too long after this in the Pitch Perfect films. I think she was in two and three. Mm. And um, she just, like... She's always been a powerhouse uh, performer. But this role is just so meaty. She is effectively an adult trapped in a child's body in a very grown-up situation, trying to get all the men around her to listen to her even though she's a child and really young and a woman. And it's like, that's a triple threat right there. Like, you know, no one's going to fucking listen to you at this point. At one point, Matt Damon bends her over his knee and spanks her for her impertinence. And rather than this being funny as a scene, you really feel how degraded and violated Matty feels at this stage. This is a sense of, like, I am trying to get something very serious done, and you are treating me like a child. You are a child. Yes, but that doesn't change the fact that I'm trying to change, get this really serious thing done. Mm. She's also a fantastic negotiator, which means that at the beginning when she's negotiating with... Is it the
1: sheriff of that particular town? It's... No. Or the horse seller? It's the I believe it's the guy who sold the horses. She's effectively saying, yes, I know my dad bought these horses from you, but... He doesn't need the horses now, he's dead, and I need the money. Yeah.
0: Back. She needs the money to pay a bounty hunter to help her to find and bring to justice this man. Yeah. The, the the vengeance and the seeing justice done goes ahead of the livelihood of the farm, which that could have been a thread through the whole book of of could you just could we go at home, you run the farm, just leave him. Like that could have been a constant uh call to her. But there's and also here's the thing: Labeef... ...is after him as well for a different reason. He killed a uh, US senator in Texas and so he wants Labeef Matt Damon wants to drag him back to Texas and have him hanged there and Matty's no he's going to be hanged for the murder of my father so there's this constant butting of heads of these two and all she had to do is just go you know what Labeef you go get him that won't cost me one red cent mm-hmm. I will take this money back to our farm and I will try to do the best with it uh, which is what my father would
1: want that's true and there is that underpinning of they can only hang him once ultimately mm. if he's dead for the senator or if he's dead for your father it amounts to the same thing However, I think what underpins particularly the Cohen brothers' version is that Matty does not trust LeBeuf, the professional, yeah. to be able to get this done. At the very least, which is another she reason, wants... reason she's
0: a fucking firecracker. She's like, you bounty hunters don't know your shit. Allow me, a farmhand, exactly. to do your job for you. But
1: the, the fundamental element of it is that unless she, at the least, witnesses it, mm. and unless she's with somebody that she has hired, she can't go with him. Yeah. It won't not necessarily that it won't get done, but she won't know in her heart that yeah. it's dealt with.
0: But that's clearly the thing. She is haunted by this injustice and tragedy, and she needs to exorcise it. And she is using her energy to she is the opposite of a serious man. Yes. She is, I am going to do this thing, even She's, though this thing is probably a bad idea.
1: Absolutely. She is incredibly single-minded. And the, the whole thing, there's the sort of the play on the title is that her belief that Coburn has true grit and that's why she wants him for this mm. job, the person who's carrying the grit round here is, is Matty. Her.
0: That's what I always took to be the end uh, result of the, the film. It says in the uh, uh, the book synopsis, all three of them prove that they have true grit. and like No,
1: Labeef does not. No,
0: no, no. <laughs> A, Labeef gets shot and just keeps going uh, eventually, although he yeah. is shot. Cogburn does do the Cogburn thing. Mm. It's Matty who is so out of her depth that manages to remain focused and remain alive mm. in a situation that should swallow her.
1: Absolutely, and the fact that we get to see her as this old woman looking back on what's happened, mm. and it is abundantly clear that those personality traits that carried her through this as a kid mm. have remained. Life, the world, etc., has not beaten them out of her yeah. at all. I'm Maddie Ross, daughter of Frank Ross.
5: Oh, (laughs) tragic thing. May I say your father impressed me with his manly qualities. He was a close trader, but he acted the gentleman.
6: Well, I propose to sell those ponies back to you that my father bought
5: Oh, that, I fear, is out of the question. I will see that they're shipped to you at my earliest convenience.
6: Well, we don't want the ponies now. We don't need them.
5: Well, that hardly concerns me. Your father bought the ponies and paid for them. And there's an end of it. I I have the bill of sale.
6: And I want $300 for Papa's saddle horse that was stolen from your stable.
5: You have to take that up with a man who stole the horse.
6: Tom Cheney stole the horse while it was in your care. You are responsible.
5: <laughs> yeah, I admire your sand. But I believe you will find I'm not liable for such claims.
6: You were the custodian. If you were a bank ever robbed, you could not simply tell the depositors to go hang.
5: I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Secondly, your valuation of the horse is high by about $200.
6: How old are you? If anything, my price is low. My Judy is a fine racing mare. I've seen her jump an eight-row fence with the heavy rider. I'm 14.
5: Uh, Oh, well, it's all very interesting. The ponies are yours. Take them. Your father's horse was stolen by a murderous criminal. I had provided reasonable protection for the creature as per our implicit agreement. My watchman had his teeth knocked out and can take on his soup.
6: Well, I will take it to law. You have no case! Lawyer J. Noble Daggett of Darden now Arkansas may think otherwise. Is might a jury. Petitioned by a widow and three small children.
5: I will pay $200... To your father's estate, when I have in my hand a letter from your lawyer absolving me of all liability from the beginning of the world to date. I will date. take
6: two hundred dollars for Judy, plus one hundred for the ponies, and twenty-five dollars for the gray horse that Tom Cheney left. He was easily worth forty. All right, that is three hundred twenty-five dollars total. The
5: ponies have no part in it. I will not buy them. And
6: the price for Judy is three hundred twenty-five dollars.
5: <laughs> I would not pay three hundred twenty-five dollars for winged Pegasus. As for the gray horse, it does not belong to you. The
6: gray horse was lent to Tom Cheney by my father. Cheney only had the use of him.
5: I will pay $225 and keep the gray horse. I don't want the police. not accept that.
6: There will be no settlement after I leave this office. It will go to law. Art
5: right, is my last offer. $250. For that, I get the release previously discussed, and I keep your father's saddle. The gray horse is not yours to sell.
6: The saddle is not for sale. I will keep it. Lord Daggett will prove ownership of the gray horse. He will come after you with a writ of Reblevin. A what? Of All Reblevin. right, now,
5: l- l- listen very carefully, as I will not bargain further. I will take the ponies back and the gray horse, which is mine, and settle for $300. Now, you must take that or leave it, and I do not much care which it is.
6: The well, lawyer, Jacob, would not wish me to consider anything under three hundred and twenty five dollars. But I will settle for three hundred and twenty. If I am given the twenty in advance. Now, here's what I have to say about that settle.
0: She's scornful, she's argumentative, she ends up as a spinster. So you'd look at that and say, what a tragic life. She hasn't been able to, uh, you know, do the...
1: Looking at the menfolk round here, I would call that a lucky escape.
0: She has (laughs) retained her independence... And like, like I said, when she's negotiating to get the money back from the horse trader, she eventually just exhausts him mm. because she won't take no for an answer. And her negotiating skills are, you know, well, I'll take this and then I'll take that. And then this is down payment for the that, And then he's like, what, what, what? She would make such a great cartographer. And I crafted part of her went into Annie Oakley. Part of her went into Abigail in terms of the tenacity there. Mm. I love that. Also, the... um, Well, we'll get to it in a bit. It has a really strong beginning because of that introducing you to Matty, and a really strong ending when they have to... You know, she has to have have proved to herself and she has to survive this. And Carter Burwell's score... It's hard... I mean, this is actually based on uh, uh, The the Everlasting Love and existing hymn, so it's difficult to tell whether this is his crowning glory because it's up against the theme tune to Fargo, which is fucking amazing, and the theme to Miller's Crossing, which is fucking amazing. I don't even want to pick a favourite at this point. This particular... Like, the music haunts this film like the ghost of Frank Ross, Matty's father. Uh, the middle of the film is engaging it doesn't reach the heights of that beginning and end but it's an engaging western adventure and it's got that kind of episodic um, oh brother where art thou then they meet these strange people it's yeah. not quite as strange and as heightened but yes. there's a lot more negotiation going on here and there and like you know it's the life of a bounty hunter frankly uh, some more of this in the book of Boba Fett would have been a good idea mm. but Boba's like I'm not a bounty hunter They're I'm almost... a jabber
1: <laughs> there <laughs> There are parents But elements.
0: I'm a friendly Jabber. Come in. Bring it on in for a Jabber hug.
1: Uncle Jabber. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Uncle Jabber's puzzle basement. <laughs> oh my
1: God. There's a God. rancor in there. Um, there are elements in this that I think link back to No Country for Old Men. Yeah. In the sense that, like Belle, Coburn is coming across. Things that are just a part of this world and he just accepts it because he is not Matty young and full of fire and still pissed off that all this shit goes on he just As goes, opposed to
0: old and full of fire and still pissed off that this shit goes on. Well, absolutely.
1: <laughs> but there is there is an element to him, the, the young guy that they find in the hut, yeah. in the shack, who ultimately dies horribly and there's nothing they can do about it. And Coburn's position on this is sometimes this stuff just happens. Hmm. You can be there to witness it, but you can't do anything about it. You just have to accept.
0: Hmm. So he's the one bewildered at the world in this scenario.
1: He is a bit, yeah. But he he does sort of have that same feeling of despite that he does still try and do something about the things that he can do something about is that, one of the one of the f- sayings that has kind of got me through some pretty hideous shit in this life is the thing about uh grant me the ability or the, the patience to accept the things i cannot change the strength to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference and coburn is kind of the epitome of this Except that he's gone a little bit too far the other way. He's tired. Yeah. He's he doesn't have the energy sometimes to do things. And that's what Matty brings him is this fire that he maybe had mm. once upon a time. We don't know because we don't see him as a young man. But something got him that reputation. So that's my guess is that she has this kind of this energy and this fire that he maybe misses a bit about himself. And that's why he gets caught up in her quest, which should be massively beneath, not beneath him necessarily, but not worth his time, not worth his energy.
0: The difference between John Wayne just came in and he was basically himself being Rooster Cogburn. And it's like he had a Jack Nicholson-style personality where people go to the cinema to see John Wayne being a cowboy because it was comfortable.
1: And it does amuse me that Matt Damon is kind of a bit doing him.
0: A little bit, yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeff Bridges is completely different. He's like, he has given up, seemingly, on the idea of of delivering legible speech? What's the word? Coherent speech. He's like Boomhauer from fucking, you know, in King of the Hill. He's astonishing to watch, and The other day we were watching uh, *Inglorious Bastards and I put these subtitles on so that Willow could follow what was being said. And I feel like you slightly change your engagement with the movie if you can easily tell what's being said from someone who is not easy to understand. I feel like when people do that intentionally in movies, you're supposed to lean forward on the couch or in your cinema seat... And slightly cock your head so that you can hear a little clearer the gibberish that's coming out of their mouths, or the very, very strong accents and the strange turns of phrase that are rooted in a specific era.
7: Take the girl. I bow out. A fine thing to decide once you brought her into the middle of the Choctaw Nation. I bow out. I wash my hands.
6: Gentlemen, we cannot fall out in this fashion. Not so close to our goal with Tom Cheney nearly in hand. In hand.
7: If he is not in a shallow grave somewhere between here and Fort Smith, he is gone. Long gone. Thanks to Mr. LeBeef, we missed our shot. We barked and the birds have flown. Gone, gone, gone. Lucky Ned and his cohort gone. Your $50 gone. Gone the whiskey. Seized in evidence. Trail is cold if there ever was one. A foolish old man who's been drawn into a wild goose chase by a harpy in trousers and a nankin poop. Mr. LeBeef, he can wander the Choctaw Nation for as long as he likes. Perhaps the local Indians will take him in and honor his gibberings by making him chief. You, sister, might go where you like. Our engagement is terminated.
0: I feel like being slightly bewildered with what's being said and trying to keep up is kind of part and parcel for the immersion.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. And honestly, with uh, subtitles, A you are being spoon fed every word that's being said. But B, you're also having some of the tension removed because you don't know what a person's going to say. Mm. But if your reading speed is faster than their talking speed, you, know you, can, you can you can you know the end of the sentence there. before they get there.
1: Mm, yeah. There there is an element of that. I do think, however, Brad Pitt tends to play it up.
0: Oh yeah. Brad Pitt I think he started doing this in Snatch, when he was like, she's not passionate to the pair on Club He like a very broad Irish accent. And Willow pointed out correctly that uh, he reminded her of um, Johnny Knoxville in Inglorious Bastards because he's kind of got that, I'm Lieutenant Aldo Wayne. Welcome to Jackass. Each of y'all owe me 100 Nazi scalps. And we're here in Charlottesville at the University of Virginia. As you can see over the way there, we got us a Tiki Torch procession. Go get yeah. me them scalps, boys. Yeah, he's got that going on. A few years after this film, (laughs) Jeff Bridges was in a film called The Seventh Son, where he basically plays the Witcher. He's a witch hunter. And it's not like this the whole way through there. It's a good thing. It's ugly, so friendly. Like that that kind of... (laughs) It's absurd. He's a a grizzled old cowboy in a fantasy setting, and he's one of the only watchable things in that abominable film.
1: I will say this. There is a huge difference between putting the subtitles on so that you can understand a film that has an excellent script and is very well written, and some of the Mm. delivery is just a little bit difficult to get your ears around. And speaking as somebody who has difficulties with audio processing, it is occasionally essential.
0: Especially with today's mumblecore drama films, when people deliver their mind like this and you can't really see them properly speaking. And the sound mix is designed for a massive cinema screen, and they've compressed and simplified it so many times that the vocal track is crushed under those, those circumstances. And frankly, if you just need to be able to keep up with what's going on, obviously use subtitles. They are an accessibility feature.
1: When you're watching a piece of shit where the script was scribbled on the back of a napkin (laughs) probably best just to leave the subtitles because it really doesn't matter.
0: (laughs) That's up to you. There is one point that We Hate Movies pointed out where where he's like halfway through the film and he's screaming at the seventh son and then he finishes it like just like exhausted puts his hands on his knees and then goes
1: fucking wishes! (laughs) A subtitle that just says garbles incoherently, and it's like, well, why am I bothering with subtitles then? And, I knew that.
0: And I think that was a uh, they they yeah. assumed as well that that was a naked lunch moment for Jeff Bridges, going, <laughs> "Oh, I'm in a piece of shit. I'm hunting a witch. I thought this would be good. It's, it's not." not. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> at the end, when they reach Josh Brolin, he turns out to be a fucking scumbag in relation to who he played in uh, uh, No Country for Old Men, very prepared to kill a little girl—not just like hit her and then run away, but like I'm going to straight up kill you because he sees in her eyes that she's prepared to kill him, and so he just that puts him in a clear-cut situation: uh, her or me. me, and you best believe <laughs> it, it ain't, ain't going to be, be him. Me. In the shooting, him in the end, she um, has to use a rifle, which blows her backwards into a pit that gets Chekhov's pitted several times. And I remember this from seeing the John Wayne film when I was very young. And there's a rattlesnake in there which bites her on the hand. But in this, like she finds a corpse, like she's she's hung upside down, and it's a it's a very steep crevice that she's stuck in, and it's very dark. Because obviously back in, in those days, it's, they had to film with a lot more light. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see what the hell's happening there during the uh, years of doing blue filters to, uh, to film at night. But in this pit, beautifully photographed by Roger Deakin, she finds a corpse and tries to get through its belongings to see if she can find a knife so she can cut herself free of the like clinging vines holding her legs. And inside his guts is a fucking nest of rattlesnakes. And I've got to credit, A, this, these are CG snakes, but at no point did I think those aren't rattlesnakes. I was repelled by this scene. Mm. And just being stuck upside down, trapped, and being unable to move in case you spook them as they slither out of this fucking rotting nest. It's just so horrible. And this is where the true grit comes from, because I would scream my tits off and die of fright. Then one of the fuckers bites her on the hand and then she gets pulled up by Cogburn and then begins the ride back. They have to get her to medical attention or she's going to die. Now, here's a little uh, tip, folks. for uh, If you're out walking and uh, you, uh, and one of your party gets bitten by a snake, that whole like slicing open the wound and sucking out the poison... Is actually more likely to create a larger infected wound in the person who's been bitten and potentially poison the person doing the sucking. Uh, it used to be quite a uh, like a, a way of delaying things. Mm. Now your best bet is you'll if you're out walking in a place with venomous snakes, you're probably going to be somewhere near a ranger station or somewhere I was going with to the say, correct.
1: Just get yourself to anti anti-venom as quickly as you can.
0: But rather than running, which will make the blood course through the body of the person who's been bitten and actually bring the poison closer to their heart, the uh, idea is to keep them as calm as possible and to walk out of the woods, find the ranger station, get the injections and anti-venoms when when you're able to. In this there's no fucking ranger station. They've got, they've got to gallop back on little Blackie the pony uh, to get Matty medicine immediately because otherwise she's going to fucking die. That's when Carter Burwell's score cuts back in again and that's this amazing moment, this nighttime ride and they push and push and push this pony until she gives out and it's it's just a pony and yet it feels like this this because we know Mattie's uh, narrating from the future, we know she survives it, but that something is being lost over this time. And yet, from what you were talking about earlier, something is also being gained. Rooster Cogburn is, seems like an old man in uh, Mattie's flashback. Like you say, he's tired, he's giving up. He lives for nearly 50 more years because she goes to visit him in the epilogue in the Wild West show. Now she's an old uh, lady herself. And that means he must be closer to 90, maybe n- maybe closer to 100. That isn't from nowhere. He didn't just get tired and then consider this to be a job and then just carry on and then wind up somehow in a Wild West show. Mm-hmm. The fact that she is able to hold on and her... Her fire and tenacity and her grit throughout this particular adventure, but very specifically at the end when most people would roll over and die. And she's in a delirium, but keeps going. Reignites whatever ember his own personal furnace has dwindled to. We don't get to see him transformed, but we do get the evidence of his... Newfound zeal. If you have read or listened to Secret Rooms, but not yet seen the 2010 True Grit, then you will recognize at least one moment directly inspired by this film. Abigail had been expecting her own horse as we escaped the House of Ashtect, and glanced about for Daisy. Of course, I would not have expected the poor beast to make three urgent journeys in one night. We later learned of Annie's ride back to Elkview in the darkest hours, not stopping or slowing, pushing the animal beyond the limits of her endurance, until finally, within three miles of the encampment, Daisy's poor heart gave out and she sunk to the ground, never to find her feet again. Her last act had been to steady herself so as not to fall on her rider. Annie had no time to weep, or succumbed to despair, and left her in the road, running the rest of the way back. Hours later, as we neared Elkview, and the brown shape of that dauntless steed came into view, Abigail's jaw locked, and she dismounted to retrieve the saddle herself. Eleven lives. Back at Elkview, we slept for several hours, When I awoke, I found a small gift on the table beside me. Annie had been busy and procured for the two of us a pair of sturdy leather eye patches. The note she left simply read,
4: For when you're done explaining. explaining,